Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. And for every time we are made to feel afraid because of the disasters that have been created by greed, we need to look around us and see all the blossoming and abundance and solidarity that keeps life going. That, of course, was the voice of Vandana Shiva. She has been described as the Gandhi of grain and the most powerful voice for people of the developing world. For over four decades, she has vociferously advocated for diversity, indigenous knowledge, localization, and real democracy. Vandana Shiva has been at the forefront of seed saving, food sovereignty, and connecting the dots between the destruction of nature, the polarization of societies, and indiscriminate corporate greed. Vandana received the Right Livelihood Award in 1993, an honor known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. I will be right back with my conversation with Vandana Shiva after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now, let's get back to the show. I'm here with Vandana Shiva. Dr. Shiva, welcome to the Postwoke Podcast. Hello, Mickey. I'm very grateful to have you on the show. And I'm going to open with a little bit of some prompts and then get out of the way and let you do your thing. So I would love for this episode to be what provokes the non-skeptical people to independent thought. And I would love for it also to be used by those who are already awakened to help convince the mainstream folks in their life to break free of the fear matrix and start asking questions. So um, here are a couple of prompts. The the push toward the so-called great reset, digital ID, cashless society, and genetically altered human bodies is happening in plain sight. But it's not a force of nature or a preordained theology. It is founded on the decisions of billionaire vampires parasites who do not create, digital barons who use a mechanistic mindset to consume the energy of sentient beings, human, non-human, plants. And as you've said, what's being mind is our mind. Now, in your work, you make deep historical and spiritual connections to help weave a thread that can provoke anyone to awareness and action. 
So I'm asking, can you help us comprehend how the mess we find ourselves in today connects with, for example, John D. Rockefeller, the Nazi Germany, the so-called Green Revolution, seed patents, geoengineering and weather modification, impossible burgers, the World Economic Forum, robot farmers, and of course, the man you compare to Christopher Columbus, Bill Gates. The floor is yours to take this in whatever direction feels right for you. So it goes back to Christopher Columbus, <laughs> and it goes back to the fact that because Europe was in deep crisis, um, they thought they'd solve their problems by going and grabbing other people's land and territories and worked out an amazing, fictitious, civilizational history that we were barbarians in the South, where all the wealth was, which is where the Christopher Columbuses and the East India companies wanted to come. We weren't impoverished countries. We were the source of wealth. We were the source of spices and textiles in India, which is what Columbus was seeking, as was the East India Company. Columbus lost his way, and that's why it is fascinating that all the Native Americans with hundreds and thousands of unique names for their nations are all called Indians, mm. because he thought he had landed in India. And I say Columbus's blunder has, in a way, unified us all. Um, and that's the kind of unity we need to seek to get out of the colonizing mode. Of course, colonization had huge costs. First of all, it created the idea of private property. Before that, no resources could be owned. They were all the commons. That's why, along with colonialism, went the enclosures of the commons. Two centuries, the peasants of England were fighting to resist their enclosures. Our land was never owned as a private property, as a tradable good. With one stroke of a pen, the British said the land of India belonged to them, and therefore the peasants of India should pay them taxes. We transferred $45 trillion to England. That's how we became poor. Our peasants died of famine, the last big one being the 1942 Great Bengal Famine. And of course, England got rich, Spain got rich, Portugal got rich, Europe got rich. Um, countries like ours weren't going to take it laying that lying down. In 1857, we had already thrown out the East India Company. They had invaded India. They were created in 1600, invaded India in 15, 1757 in a century. They had impoverished the peasants. And um, most people don't know that because people were being killed, because they were discussing the revolution, the peasants and the people learned a new way to communicate. They shared bread, the chapati. Our bread is the chapati, the flat bread. They shared bread with each other. And the minute someone accepted bread, that meant I will join this fight. So it's always been about bread. It's always been about land. By 1947, we were free. We were independent. Uh, the Great Bengal Famine of 42 convinced ordinary citizens in India that we could not be colonized in this way. We could not be killed in this way. And that's the day um, the Quit India call was given, basically saying to the British, now you quit India. We will govern ourselves. 
and 42 onwards, the old colonizers realized, oh my gosh, they will be free people. These will be sovereign people. So where we do, how do we keep <laughs> sucking wealth out? <clears throat> the East India Company was then replaced by the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, through a meeting in the Bretton Woods in a hotel in New Hampshire. And I was there for the 50th anniversary and I went to the basement and there were first day covers which said money men of the world meet. So the money men of the world got together and said, let's form a corporation. Before that, there were no corporations. Let's create an East India Company. Let's go grab the land, grab the resources, grab the wealth. And it doesn't matter what it costs. The Bretton Woods institutions created a new form of enslavement, now with a new vocabulary of development. Um, now we were called, the old colonies were called underdeveloped <laughs> and the colonizers were suddenly called developed. And we were then forced over the many years to shift our economies from ecological foundations to fossil fuel foundations. We never had plastic in my country. The World Bank forced us to become a plastic civilization. Now we are drowning in plastic. Um, the World Bank IMF led then to new movements against structural adjustment. I have been part of the movements against WTO. We created an international forum on globalization. And we said we must stop this institution, which is freedom for corporations and no freedom for people. In Seattle, citizens shut down what was going to be the constitution of the world, free trade. After that, militarization of society started to happen. After that, protests started to get criminalized. After that, ordinary freedoms started to get controlled. So today, we are seeing the next few steps. My own work on uh, agriculture, and I'm trained in quantum theory, that was my field of choice. But I was forced to look at agriculture when in 1984, the richest part of India, where the Green Revolution was introduced, the state of Punjab, the rich land of five rivers, you know, rose in revolt. The 30,000 people died in that crisis. And I had studied there for my MSc honors in particle physics, and there was no violence at that time. It was prosperous, peaceful, and a, a decade later, it was erupting in violence. And I wanted to ask, why is this happening? Same year, 1984, city of Bhopal, a pesticide plant owned then by Union Carbide, now by Dow, which is now Corteva, they killed thousands of people. They had a poster which said, Carbide has a hand in India's future with a beaker pouring a red liquid out on a peasant plowing his field. And they did metaphorically have a hand in our future, a bloody hand in our future. So that's the year I started to figure out what is this green revolution? Where did it come from? What is its scientific technological base? What is its political base? And that's when I understood that the chemicals that we use in farming have their origins in Hitler's Germany. IG Farmer was the cartel that worked to make gases to kill people in concentration camp that uh, 
fixed nitrogen uh, in, in the atmosphere through using fossil fuels to make explosives initially, which then became synthetic fertilizers. But the Germans weren't working alone. It, this needed a lot of money and it needed a lot of fossil fuels. So the partner for IG Farben was a company called Standard Oil IG Farben. Standard Oil was the monopoly over oil under Rockefeller, which also created the monopoly in pharmaceuticals. It created the monopoly on banking and financial world. And it had a deep, deep hand in Hitler's chemical warfare, initially against the German people, then during the wars. And after the wars were over, instead of wrapping up, making these war chemicals, they said, let's just call them agrochemicals. Let's mm -hmm. call them pesticides and herbicides and start a narrative that without them, you can't grow food. So the Green Revolution actually is chemical warfare continuing when it should have shut down after the wars. Rockefeller was the driver of the so-called Green Revolution. I've always said the Green Revolution was neither green nor revolutionary. Revolutions begin from the ground up. Anything imposed from the top down is the dictatorship. And there's nothing green about it because it violated every law of ecology. It violated the fact that the soil is living. It called soil an empty container. It violated the fact that biodiversity is the way you grow food sustainably. They reduced food to monocultures of chemically fertilized crops. This needed 10 times more water. So you had a water famine in the water abundant land. Everyone is screaming and crying about rivers drying right now. Nobody's looking at how industrial agriculture fueled by fossil fuels, driven by Rockefeller, who created the Green Revolution, is a big reason why our groundwater is dying, why our rivers are dying. And of course, a season of heat will bring a little bit of the level of water down. But if Lake Mead is drying up, it's because 70 to 80% of the water is going for agriculture. If Lake Chad is drying up, because 80% of the rivers that charge it are being drained for fertilizing chemical crops. So Green Revolution was the beginning of this violence. And because I was compelled to study it for the United Nations University at that time, I wrote a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution. And that threw me into discussions on biotechnology. So today we are worrying about genetic engineering of humans. But the genetic engineering began with our plants and our seeds. And all of the corporations that claim to be the inventors have always been pirates. Globalization was based on piracy. Today's creation of a global control system is still based on piracy. Um, at that meeting, the corporations laid out and said, we must now own the seed. And the way to own the seed is to genetically engineer seeds. Then we claim we've made something new. We take a patent. And using patent law, we will prevent farmers from having their own seeds. And they said at this meeting in 87, by the turn of the century, no farmer will have their own seed. It'll all be GMO seed. It'll all be patented seed. And we'll be four companies and five companies controlling food and health. That's the day I decided to start saving seed. That's the day I started to follow what was going on in biotechnology and genetic engineering. And I started to study what was going on in the GATT, the General Agreement in Trade and Tariffs, which then became the World Trade Organization. And it's not that we haven't had trade before. Um, after all, India was the biggest trading nation. 
before colonialism. Colonialism was created to colonize India. Uh, but that uh, uh, trade was between free people, you know. Mm. We wanted to sell the pepper. The Romans wanted to buy the pepper and it, there was exchange. And because it was fair, we were paid for equal amounts of pepper in gold, you know, a sack of pepper, a sack of gold. Once it was colonized, all the wealth went to the European countries, particularly England. The, the idea of invention goes back to colonialism too. You know, when I wanted to understand where does the word patent come from? You know, what does it mean? And it turns out that the piece of parchment that Columbus set sail with was called the letters patent because they used to be sealed letters that were sent between European kings and queens. They were always fighting against each other and getting married to each other. And everything was secret. But the parchment that was open to be read to the inhabitants who were to be colonized as barbarians, that was a letter patent, which means mm -hmm. an open letter. And that's where the word patent starts. It has since then been used for invention, but a Monsanto doesn't create a seed because seed is not a machine. A seed is a self-organized complex organism which has millions of years of evolution behind it and millions of years of the potential of future evolution if it's not terminated, if its evolution is not interrupted. Because every GMO is either biologically made non-renewable or legally prevented from renewing through patent systems. So the fact that we are today mining our minds goes back to the fact that they started to mine genes. Intellectual property rights, patenting begins, at, of course, with colonialism, but with living systems with the period of globalization, written into law with the World Trade Organization. And, uh, and World Trade Organization was nothing but dismantling the structures of sovereignty, both people's sovereignty and national sovereignty. None of our countries have, have been shaped without struggle. If they are workers' rights, if they are environmental rights, if they are women's rights, if they are peasant rights, they have been struggled for. And these were enshrined in national laws. The World Trade Organization and the World Bank and IMF, the main purpose is dismantle the laws that protect the land, the earth, and the people, and create a free trade for corporations. The result has been, one, that there used to be hundreds and thousands of seed companies. Now there are four corporations that control the seeds, and they also control the chemicals. But new mergers are taking place. Not only are chemical and seed companies merging, the current merger is between the technology robber barons who have made so much money through the deregulation. Most people don't know that the first World Trade Organization ministerial meeting in Singapore was used by people like Gates to remove any payment and taxes on information exchange. Wow. So they have not paid taxes. And that's why they've been able to make so much money. Why is the tech sector so rich? They have intellectual property and they pay no taxes. They're deregulated. So corporations became bigger. The billionaires became richer. Then with the collapse of Wall Street in 2008, the asset management funds of 
the billionaires and the big pension funds and wherever there was big money went to the Black Rocks and Vanguards. And I was, when I was totally puzzled with two phenomena, one, Bill Gates running the climate show in, in the Paris Treaty and Bayer buying out Monsanto, that's when I wanted to figure out what's going on. You know, how is Gates so powerful politically? How did Bayer buy Monsanto? And that's when I wrote the book with my son called Oneness Versus 1%, because we realized it's the billionaires who own everything now. Mm. You know, the corporations themselves are disappearing. Wow. Um, I'm going to cut in here and just say, first of all, if there's one thing I appreciate, it's a connecting of dots, which which you are just so wonderful at. And I truly just love hearing everything you said. And I, the context is so valuable for people to have a better uh, perspective on what's happening. I wasn't going to go in this direction, but I, I, as I'm listening to this history being um, recited to me, I, I started wondering, what is your perception when we talk about these pirates? Um, are they, in, in, from your perspective, are they operating from a place when they ignore natural law and, and how the world, nature works? Are they operating from a place of ignorance? Is it greed? Is it evil? Is it a combination of all? You've, I've assumed you've interacted with some of these pirates. What's your take on on what their end game is? Is it is it any of the ignorance, greed, evil, anything that anything else you could think of? Well, it's definitely greed, but it's greed driven by irresponsibility of the consequences and greed driven by a lot of arrogance combined with a lot of ignorance. Ignorance about how societies work, ignorance about how nature works, and the arrogance that we are masters of the world. If you read the literature that shaped our times, the mechanical mind, the reductionist thought. If you read Descartes, you read Baker, you read Boyle. They are basically laying out nature is inert, dead matter. She has to be subjugated. She's just a machine. And basically extracting whatever is useful and profitable is the purpose. And repeatedly they use the phrase. Bacon used the phrase. Boyle used the phrase. We have to get rid of any idea of integrity and reverence for the earth in order to establish man's empire over the universe. So they've always been wanting to play God. And, uh, and you know, this period gave them the opportunity. You know, I, in my book, uh, I, I wrote and I said, when Columbus set sail, you know, God had given power to the Pope. And the Pope gave power to the king and queen of Portugal and Spain, Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand, who then gave the letter pa uh, patent uh, to Columbus. But it was a four-level delegation of authority with Mr. Gates. He's the god, he's the Pope, he's the king and the queen, and he's the merchant adventurer. Wow. Have you met and spoken at length with Bill Gates? Do you know anything yeah. of him? I have debated Bill Gates. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background now. So 1999, all of us around the world had got together and created International Forum on Globalization because we knew it, lies would be told. Our farmers would die and they'd be telling us farmers got rich. You know, the kind of papers Monsanto got published, Indian farmers uh, became richer by $127 million while 400,000 Indian farmers have died. 
85% of them who got into debt because of Monsanto's BT cotton. So we said they're going to tell all kinds of stories. And so we must talk to each other as real human beings with real experience about our countries. And when we stopped Seattle, uh, WTO in Seattle, you know, the, the globalization issue was now not being defined by corporations anymore. It was now defined by people and people across the world. So I get invited to the World Economic Forum. And um, I go there. The first year, I debate World Bank. I debate DuPont. Next year, I'm again debating these big shots. And uh, the movements are outside in the snow. And they ask me to come and address them. So I'm walking across the snow. And the policeman uh, on guard starts to attack me. And I said, listen, I'm invited inside. I can't become a criminal outside. And I stopped him from literally hitting me with a baton. I went back. I, I talked to the young people who were out there. And I walked back to the World Economic Forum. And I called for a press conference. And I, I said, this is absolute doublespeak. You can't call us in as members of a conference and then beat us up when we join citizens who are protesting against you. And I said, I'm leaving this conference and I'll never return till I get an apology from Mr. Klaus Schwab. I haven't received that apology. The next time round, the World Economic Forum was meeting in Melbourne and big protests, the biggest ever protests. The streets of Melbourne were totally shut. And I was going to be on a platform with Bill Gates. So I was marching with the people and I said, you know, there is a session I'm supposed to address, but if you don't want me to go, I won't go. And they said, no, 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 here's our declaration. Please read it in there to these World Economic Forum people. So I went in, they let me go in. I read the declaration. Mr. Gates had to come by helicopter from the top. I talked about what was happening on the streets in Melbourne and all over the world. Mr. Gates talked about the digital divide and the digital divide and the digital divide. Wow, what what a what an amazing perspective to, to be someone who is a, who is able to interact with both groups and rep, but represent the people from the streets and obviously not just the streets from the farms and the forests and all over that the, the the folks who aren't invited there and if they are as you said are criminalized and the you know the lessons of Seattle I remember distinctly how how I live in New York City and going to any type of protest here, in particular, 12 years after Seattle would occupy Wall Street, where the militarized police was in it, handled things a lot differently because they weren't going to let another Seattle happen. Um, I want to, just listening to your story, I want to backtrack because um, the way I got in touch with you for this was related to your most recent book, Terra Viva, My Life in a Biodiversity of Movements. And the, the brilliance of this book is how it lays, it just lays the um, the breadcrumbs leading up to how you became the person you are today. And I, I want to ask you about one group in particular, and this is what you wrote in the book. You said, Chipko was clearly my university for ecology. While my parents provided the embedding in a forest culture and an appreciation of natural mixed forests, it was Chipko that made me realize in intimate detail how biodiversity is at the heart of sustainable economies and how nature provides for the basic needs of the large majority in the world. So would you share a little about the Chipko movement and the impact it has and perhaps still has on your life? 
Yeah, I mean, perennial movements never die. You know, the people who have participated in them might fade away. Sundarlal Baguna is no more, most of Gora Devi is no more. Many of the people who were, um, you know, the in the vanguard of the movement are no more. But the movement is very much alive uh, to, to the extent that uh, even when people are protecting the old growth forests in Canada and in, in Western United States, they're called the Chipkos. But of course, they're called Chipkos as a swear word. Chipko means to hug to love, to embrace. And the creative part of this movement was don't try and cut these forests because, you know, the kind of disasters we are seeing with flooding and uh, landslides, that's when it started. 1972 is the first flood and landslide in the Alaknanda River. And the women connected it to deforestation. Nobody's connecting the new floods or the new droughts to the destruction of our forests. They're all only talking about you know, a temperature increase. But when you've devastated the land and its capacity to absorb the rain, you have drought and you have floods. That's what the women knew through their knowledge and experience. And, uh, and they got together and said, if you try and cut these trees, these trees are our mothers. They give us soil and water and pure air. They're not timber mines. We're going to hug them. We're going to hug them and you'll have to kill us before you kill the tree. 10 years from 1972 to 1981, forest after forest, they would do it. And it was, the reason I say this was my university of ecology was not only because I learned ecology from the women, you know, from being in the forest with my parents and my father, we tracked the forest, you know, and for me, yeah, the beautiful rhododendron and the wonderful pine, you know, um, all this was an aesthetic experience. But with the women, I learned the economic experience of the mm. connection between the forest and the river, between the forest and the food that the women grew in their agriculture. And that interconnectedness and that ecology of interconnectedness is what Chipko taught me. And because my early activism began with Chipko, in, you know, in Chipko, there was never, ever a separation between protecting nature and protecting humanity, because that schizophrenia is, I think, still affecting a large part of the shallow green environmental movement, um, who always think you have to sacrifice human being to protect nature. Yeah? Mm. Whereas human beings are the protectors of nature when they're allowed to be protectors and not turned into enemies of the earth. And uh, so, it, you know, it was so very clear that the biodiversity of the forest and the biodiversity of the farm were vital to stable ecosystems, to preventing rivers from becoming devastating floods in one season and no water in the next season. And all of my later work, you know, my work on water and dams and my book, Water Wars, grew out of that foundational knowledge. And my professors were the women of Chipko who'd never been to school, forget college. And here I was, you know, originally I was doing my PhD PhD in particle physics. I trained in the nuclear establishment in India. And you know, here we, we think, oh, we know everything. <laughs> I got a PhD, work in nuclear establishment. And you get so humbled because they know every herb. They know the property of every herb. They know every seed. They know every fruit tree. The songs would be about how the oak gives you milk in the leaves because they feed the tender oak to the animals. Um, 
and in the roots they give it water and that's the ecology of an oak forest so yes chipko is my university of ecology and chipko in various new forms continues to be my teacher um you know i i've learned that you never stop learning uh, it's it's wonderful to, i to hear as you describe this i can i i feel like i can sense in your voice the same passion and wonder that you might have felt when you first encountered those women like the, it you seem you bring them alive in this sense but it seems to to empower you and it, it makes me think about how i first saw you speak in person in new york city in 1996 it was a talk i believe at the riverside church and i know it was definitely you and definitely Ralph Nader and several others and i've since then heard you speak and to prepare for this i listened to many uh podcasts and you've always when, when in 1996 you exuded power and optimism and motivation but i sense even more of that now and and if i'm correct how is this possible and how can people listening tap into their own wellspring of possibilities resourcefulness and innovation and that sense of wonder i just heard in your voice how do we build up our resilience and would you assign some of this mindset to any type of spiritual perspective or practice um well in anyone who connects to life who connects to the sacredness of life and every expression of the sacredness of life whether it's be a river or the forest or the soil Uh, it that spiritual practice um there can be an a spirituality of separation where it's only about you but i think the true spirituality is what the word yoga really means yoga means to join any joining and seeing the interconnectedness is spirituality and it's making whole it's becoming one so chipko was you know it was of the forest in the 70s in 82 i was invited by the ministry by by then i'd become an environmentalist and an ecological expert and the ministry of environment asked uh, me and a, a team to do a study of mining in what was my hometown i was at that time in south in india in bangalore and of course i jumped on this opportunity and i did the study on mining and our study led to the closure of the mines i think i have talked about it in terraviva mm-hmm. um because our, our research showed that the limestone left in the mountain served as an aquifer and created a water ecology that became the basis of many economies but limestone extracted for cement or steel of course benefited those two three companies but it left ruins and the rivers were in flood the same kind of devastation that we'd seen with deforestation when the mines were stopped because of supreme court order which used our study to say we have an article 21 in our constitution which says every citizen of india has a right to life and i i wish the right to life debate in america would widen out to see Indeed. the right to life of every being on this planet i um, concur so the 20 uh, article 21 they interpreted it and said when commerce undermines life and our study showed that commerce was undermining life they said commerce must stop because the state must guarantee that life continues this was the first legal decision on environmental destruction in india 1983 wow a little mine in a corner had not been put in the map that was given to us so one fine day i'm sitting in my little my mother's 
Cowshed, which became my office of the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology. And I see a group of women marching in. And uh, they said, what do you have against us? Why didn't you shut our mine? And uh, I said, I didn't know it exists. Here's the map that the government gave us. Your mine doesn't exist in it. So they said, if we start a Chipko of the mountain, will you join us? And I said, of course I'll join you. Oh. And I would go back. I did their studies for them. I would go back whenever they needed me. One day, they were attacked. The way, you know, the women for the forest hug the trees, or they said they would hug the trees. For the Chipko of the mountains, the women literally hugged the mountains. They made a base camp to prevent any equipment from going up to the mountain to mine the limestone. One day, the goons, of course, all extractive industry is based on mafia rule. You know, I call the chemical companies the poison cartel. And, you know, of course, Rockefeller was part of the rock po poison cartel. But they always function as cartels. So they brought a bunch of goons to physically attack the women with iron rods and chains. And someone drove to me and came and informed me this had happened. I said, oh, I'll come and visit. And I thought the women, you know, having been hurt and beaten, would be in their homes. And I'd visit all their homes. But they were sitting in the same tent where they had been protesting, bandages on their head, bandages wow. on their arm, casts uh, on their broken legs. And there was a lovely woman, um, Itwari Devi, 60 years old at that time. So I just said, you've all been attacked so badly. And here you are back again. The question you asked me is the question I asked her. Where do you get the power? Wow. And where do you get the Shakti? In our, in our language, the, you know, the in inherent part is Shakti. And we were walking on the stream bank on the grass. And, you know, here were the oak trees around us and the sinciaru grasses around us. And she said, we are walking on the grass. We are trampling on the grass, but the grass bounces back. We collect the leaves of the trees and we feed them to our animals, but the leaves come back. That same power that's in the grass and is in that leaf and is in the tree and is in the universe is the power in us. Wow. I, I don't know what I, how I expected you to answer that particular group of questions, but I couldn't imagine a more inspiring answer than that. And what a gift in your life to have been able to meet with and connect and support and learn from such a diverse group of incredible, brave and determined, wise people. Um, I, 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 I want to urge the readers to, to read all your books, but the one most recently has a memoir type of feel to it that I think is something that could be really, really needed today as we face such a, a myriad of issues and we need, we need to find ways to connect and, and struggle and, and win. So I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. I want to begin to wrap up and, and mention that I've recently heard you on a, a, at least one podcast, if not more, describe that the next decade would be what you would call a determining decade. And in particular, I believe it was on Dr. McCullough's podcast, you mentioned a potential boycott or a, a, a steps you were going to take to organize the people and motivate them and, and learn from them. And could you share with us uh, such plans and how we can get involved or how we can create our own versions of it wherever we live as we move forward into this into this very odd time period of, of where they're trying to impose transhumanism on us, but there's so much, the majority of people on earth 
want desperately not to, to be going really essentially in the opposite direction. Um, so, you know, the way I, I look at it, the, <laughs> the three places of the contemporary attempt at enslavement of the human mind, the human spirit, the humanity itself is first through the, our health, second through our food, and third through the digital dictatorship that I've talked about in my book, Oneness versus 1%. So how do we stay free on health? Protect your body, defend your body and its integrity. And you know, every day, Turmeric, that lovely root, you know, Starbucks sells a turmeric latte now, but we used to we drink every night a bit of turmeric and milk. It substitutes about 50 drugs which have side effects. There's healing all around us, and anything living can be healed. Machines break down, living systems heal. So our knowledge of healing, our knowledge of health and wholesomeness that has to be a big part because colonizing of through health and through creation of disease. Yeah, I get surprised in India every time I travel, there are more and more hospitals, fewer and fewer shops with food, fewer and fewer shops with basic needs, but more and more hospitals. But how long can you make people sick and how long will you bring them to hospital? So being healthy as part of human integrity, food, you know, when the desperate Silicon Valley and Bill Gates want to make fake food as their next place of patenting and control, this is the time we have to do what we did with seed, with what we did with food, seed freedom, food freedom. And every year from 2nd of October, which is Gandhi's birth anniversary to 16th October, which is World Food Day, we celebrate the hundreds of ways we can defend our seed freedom and food freedom, which becomes our health freedom. And finally, on the issue of dictatorship and uh, digital dictatorship and digital control, you know, I, we, we know that everything is now about surveillance. Every communication is about surveillance. So we have to deepen our real life interactions with plants and with the soil in community with friends and disengage as much as possible to the spheres that they have worked out are necessary for their empire and necessary for surveillance. So we have to work out what are the spheres of our freedom and enlarge those spheres. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And the, the focus on the fundamentals, the basics, the food and the health, obviously is where it starts. But this awareness, and this is something that I've taken on sort of as a personal mission, just to try and make people more aware of this digital dictatorship, because there is no other way to describe it. So I'm going to suggest, um, the, for the show notes of this, I'm going to give links to your book and to Navdanya, your group. Do you want to quickly mention what Navdanya does? So, you know, when the idea of seed patenting and Jenya Moores and the GATT came up, I decided I was going to save seeds. First four years, I did it alone. And then I realized it was a bigger challenge than two legs. And I created a, a movement um, and a trust called Navdanya. Navdanya means nine seats, but it also pronounced in a slightly different way means the new gift. So for us, nine seats stands for diversity. We've created 150 community seed banks. And the new gift is the gift of the commons, the gift of regeneration and our potential to be part of regeneration. And Navdanya has an earth university where we learn from the earth 
And every October we do a return to earth course, but we do courses throughout the year. And at the Navdanya farm, really biodiversity is the teacher. The farmers who work on the farm are the teachers. The soil is the teacher. The earthworms are the teachers. The pollinators are the teachers. And for every time we are made to feel afraid because of the disasters that have been created by greed, we need to look around us and see all the blossoming and abundance and solidarity that keeps life going. Uh, well said. Dr. Shiva, I deeply appreciate your time. And this has been a, a profound pleasure to just interact with you and to have you weave together this type of information and, and I'm sure inspire everyone who is listening. So thank you so much for all you've done and all you will continue to do. Thank you, Mickey. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month less than 17 cents a day, you can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial and it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber and please spread the word. And while you're at it, please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is, and now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance, and let's get back to the show. As Dr. Shiva so eloquently reminded us, small actions and small changes add up. And I'm not talking about bringing your own bag to the supermarket as some type of futile counterbalance to global corporations toxifying the entire planet. I'm talking about the acts that we can perform against the so-called Great Reset, because these powers that shouldn't be are banking on our compliance, our cowardice, and our craving for so-called convenience. The act of us saying no to them is very unexpected, and thus, it matters. And as this episode, I hope, highlighted to you, there are more people with us than you ever imagined. In fact, all of nature is counting on us and has our back. So yeah, it's daunting to stand up to power. It's frightening to speak up and fight back. But always keep in mind, compliance never works. Never forget that those who participated in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising had a higher rate of survival than those who went along peacefully. So, as always, keep your guard up.